Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Julia Scotti is a comedian who has enjoyed a career resurgence in her 60s, performing on America's Got Talent in 2016, and in 2020 as part of the Showtime Comedy Showcase, More Funny Women of a Certain Age, alongside the likes of Caroline Ray and Carol Liefer. She currently stars in a new documentary from filmmaker Susan Sandler called Julia Scotti, Funny That Way. The film examines Scotty's transition into womanhood, which happened only after she quit a 20-year career as a male stand-up. Scotty sat down with me over Zoom to talk about why she quit, what it felt like to come back to comedy 10 years after quitting, and the hurdles facing comedians of a certain age and a certain gender. Can the comedy industry get its own act together? We talk about that, too. So let's get to it! So, Julia Scotty, uh, last things first... Are you watching this season of America's Got Talent? No. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> if, they, if I'd have won, I'd have been watching, but no. No, no, I actually, um, I, no, I'm not really. I'm not a, I didn't even, I, to be honest with you, I didn't watch it before. <laughs> That's what I was, that was my second question, is did you know what you were getting yourself into when you went on the show in the first place? This was 2016 that you did the show. Yeah, well, yes, I I kind of knew what I was getting into. Here's the story. A lovely lady. No, here's the story. What happened was I got, I was getting some juice. I had a show in Philadelphia, and I was starting to do stand-up again after a 10-year layoff. And uh, one of the gay newspapers in Philly, Philly Gay News, did a front cover on me. And uh, I started to get some press because of that. And I had a manager at the time, and who's my dear, dear friend named Kathy Caldwell. Um, she put up a website, set up my website. And we got an email from AGT asking if I'd like to audition for the show. Now, you're, you've been around comedy long enough, so you know, comics are like, I don't want to do that, that show. I'm not going to do it. I hate putting myself out there in co- competition. I, and, my, and Kathy's like, what are you, a fucking idiot? Because they're practically offering it to you on a plate. I was like, well, in that case, let me go do the audition. So I did the, uh, I had what was called an appointment audition. And, uh, you know, the rest is rock and roll. Can I say F on this show? Yeah, you can say F. Oh, okay. All right. (laughs) What about fuck? Can I say fuck? (laughs) You can say, you can say, you can say any, any word with F in it. Speaking of words with F in it, how how does how did America's Got Talent compare to the funniest person in America contest? Which I I was only a wee little lad when that was happening, but I do I do oh, have, was I coincidentally <laughs> I do have vague memories of it being a thing. For for those of us listening who do not remember, Please, please regale me with what the funniest person in America contest was all about. It was a, it was a vehicle for the Showtime Network, correct? Yes, it, it was. Showtime at that point was just getting some footing. HBO had launched a couple of years earlier, and Showtime was determined to be their competition. And the reason they chose comedy, two reasons: it was cheap back then to produce a com- comedy show, and HBO was already doing specials with 
Carlin and I, I, I forget who else. People, they were easy shows to produce. So Showtime, in an effort to get audience, said, well, let's run this contest. We'll get a winner in each state. People will watch the network. And the winner will go on to the L.A. to shoot a special. So I um, I entered for New Jersey, which is where I'm from. And I, and I, I got on it. I won it. I think I was the only one, but I I was the very first winner of the show Uh, after the law, because I was closest to New York, I guess. (laughs) And that's how it happened. So, and and if you look behind me, I don't know if you can see, I'm always not good, but see that, that little pie with the hand, like the mm -hmm. hand in it, that's my award from Showtime. I can bring it closer if you'd like. So you won it before Ellen DeGeneres. Like I knew that that was part of her, bio we were in it in the same year okay she won the national contest oh okay so you were in jersey which kind of soured me on contests Uh, i said at the time listen 40 years from now if some television show asked me to go and perform in a contest i'm not doing it (laughs) now you know the thing about the thing about comedy in in the 80s other than there being a giant boom uh-huh. Like there, like there was pre-pandemic, there was like a new digital boom in comedy, but like all of the all of the great uh, female comedians we knew then who have since come out as lesbians, they were all closeted, or were they so closeted that people in comedy didn't know, or did everybody in comedy know? Um, a lot of them we knew, mm-hmm. you know, of course, and you don't, you know. You don't go around outing people. Even today, I, I don't out people if I know. But yeah, we knew a lot of them. Some were surprised. Yeah. How how, how much did how much did that atmosphere though, of you know knowing that they were there were these funny women like Ellen DeGeneres or Rosie O'Donnell or or Wanda Sykes or Judy Gold, like knowing what what they had to go through as women who were who were gay. How much how much of an impact did that have on you at the time? Well, you got to remember, I was coming at it from a different perspective. I was right. with, the, uh, with the other tribe at the time. I mean, I was always sensitive to to it anyway. I mean, I was I was going through my own issues of, of sexuality at that point, and so I was, you know, I was sensitive to it. And and, and I knew Judy uh, in particular because you brought her up back back in the back then. And I did not know she was gay. Like, apparently, everybody else but me knew that. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> uh, and you know, but I th- it wouldn't have mattered to me. It doesn't. It didn't matter then. It doesn't matter now. It doesn't matter what a person is if they're funny, especially in comedy. If they're funny, that's all that matters. Right. Well, I I just I I, I ask you because I know that there's this moment. You know, there's the, the documentary about you, funny that way. Uh, like it first went to film festivals last year in 2020, and now this summer 2021, it's now available for for streaming everywhere. Let me I just, just correct you. It's it's actually the full title is Julie Scotty Funny That Way. If you just type in Funny That Way, mm-hmm. you'll get I don't know you'll get Dancing Kittens. So oh. uh, yeah, which are not bad, but <laughs> not, not, not bad, movie. but a different different story altogether. Yeah. Uh, so there's this there's this moment in the documentary Julie Scotty Funny That Way. Mm-hmm. Where you're you're reconciled with with your son and you're watching footage of your former self mm-hmm. on stage joking about transsexuals, which is a term we don't even 
really use anymore uh, transsexuals right. who appeared on Geraldo. And right. and you're kind of taken aback watching yourself joke about the subject. Not just taken aback, horrified. Uh, horrified, ashamed, um, and embarrassed. I, I, I can only, I have no defense for it other than to say that I, I was, I was still going through issues at that time. And uh, it, I guess I was responding in, in a way that a lot of people have come to find out who have come to be gay uh, or, 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 or trans do. They, they, they respond by being uber opposite, you know. So right. I just figured if I went full tilt male or tried to be anyway, that would you know, deflect any kind of suspicion about who or what I was. It's stupid logic. Yeah. No, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've seen that play out, you know, as a journalist, I've seen that play out in politics a lot with very ultra conservative politicians railing against homosexuality. And then it turns out that they were gay the whole time. Yeah. And that's usually but, an indicator. I know mean, we could think of, you know, a couple off the top of our heads. Now, can't we, Sean, who just, <laughs> you know, bitch and moan about gay people. And we know in fact that they are. Right, but it, like, is it, do you think it's as widespread of a, or, or do you think the trend holds as much in comedy as it does in politics? That that comedians who are like that on stage might might be going through the same thing that you went through. Hmm. I think it's probably less now than it was back then. The the, the fear of it, 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 although when you get to be uh, at a certain level, if you're an actor, say, I think there it's still an issue because if an actor is outed, who's a leading man or a leading lady or what, not so much a leading lady but a leading man, it can it can be a career breaker for you. Uh, that's why I love people like Helen uh, Ellen uh, Elliot Page, who uh, that was an for lack of a bad pun, uh, ballsy thing to do, you know, to, to put her whole, her whole career, her whole life, his whole life on the line. See, I'm still struggling with the pronouns. His whole life on the line and, and career, you know, and, and still thrive. I think it's, I think it's wonderful. You know, I've, I've, I've spoken with, with hundreds, if not thousands of comedians over the years. And like what, what strikes me is like how many of them thought about quitting or worried if they were never going to make it. So, so your story is, is even more curious because you were, you were achieving success and then you quit and you took a, you took a long time off. You know, part of that was, you know, you were transitioning uh, both in life and personally and professionally. Um, what were what were those moments like? The the moment when you quit and the moment when you decided to come back. I quit uh, twenty years to the day that I started. That is May thirtieth, nineteen. Yeah, nineteen eighty. I started quit on the same date in two thousand. Uh, I quit not because I was going through the transition at that point. I would just assume some, something was still amiss. I quit because I was getting older. Uh, I was getting scared about how I was going to pay my bills in my old age and who was going to sort of take care of me. And I quit because I wanted to teach. I felt like I wanted, you know, I had something to offer to, to children as a teacher with my background in comedy. So there were a number of reasons why I quit. And plus I was seeing a lot of my friends 
go on to bigger and better things. And I was seeing a lot of my friends just going in the crapper with their lives. And I did not want that to happen. And it was mostly out of fear that I quit. Uh, um, that, that's, that's why. So then take me through the decision a decade or so later when you're like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to get back up there. After, yeah. <laughs> despite being off stage for that long and, and, in becoming a, a a newer version, a newer, better, truer version of yourself, and then deciding, okay, I want I want this version of me to be on stage now. Yeah, if you had told me in two thousand when I quit that I would someday come back as Julia Scotty and have uh, more success in this iteration of my life than I ever had as Rick Scotty, I would tell you were crazy because I never planned to come back. Uh, but you know, comedy. It's like it's I call it, it's like the Hotel California. You know, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. <laughs> I, I have, I had. Uh, you you think about it all the time when uh, my friends would ask me or people would ask me what I did for a living while I was teaching. I go, well, I used to be a comedian. Uh, I had to work that into the conversation because I felt like I still was. And I left teaching after seven years because, as you know, comedians don't play well with authority figures. And I, <laughs> I was butting heads with the, uh, my bosses, so I left. And uh, I was having lunch with a comedian friend of mine named Chris Rich. He's a comedian from uh, Bristol, Pennsylvania area. And she said to me, so when are you coming back to comedy? And I said, well, I'm not coming back. I'm, you know, I'm 60-something years old. What am I going to come back for? She goes, you know you want it. And I did. And so she happened to be working at a club that we both had worked for many, many years called the Comedy Works. And Mike Kaplan, uh, it's a club in Bristol. Mike Kaplan was the owner. So she was there that weekend. She invited me out to come and do a guest set. So I spent that week scribbling and writing him what I thought was funny stuff. But you're right. The, the thing I decided to do was to make it two things. It had to be honest and it had to be fearless. And I, that meant speaking about my transition. And it meant doing it in front of a crowd that was that A, knew me from before, and B, was predominantly blue-collar, not exactly the most liberal group in the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I went up that first week, and it was kind of like crickets, you know. Uh, and then I, uh, Kaplan talked me into coming back a second time. And from that point on, it went well. And So what happened was I, I started to go – Work that club regularly, and I, I opened up this little room in Philly, South Philly, on uh, what I think it was Tuesday nights or Wednesday nights called Julius Scotty's Comedy Test Kitchen with Chris Rich. We both did it, and it was I was basing it on the original improv, which is where I started, where we would have artists from the from Philly, which is a great arts town city. Uh, you know, after shows, come in, sing, do whatever you want to do, dance, and it was wonderful. And then they sold the they sold the place, and we were at a business. But that's where the reporter found me from the Philadelphia Gate. I know it was a long trip <laughs> to get to that story, but that's how it happened. Right, and then you know, and then after that, you you find yourself performing for in an audience that includes uh, Susan Sandler. I said, well, by that point, yeah, my career started to degenerate, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I was getting, you know, people that booked me before 
weren't sure who weren't sure they wanted to book me because they didn't know what they were going to get because there was a rumor going around that I had lost my mind <laughs> that Rick Scotty had lost his mind and he was getting a sex change you know mm-hmm. so as I started to get work again I got booked up in Nantucket which is where I met Susan and you know the rest of the story yeah how you know once once Susan got involved and and started filming you did that did that end up providing extra motivation for you, knowing that the camera was on and documenting your your career? That like, no. oh, I I better start I better start doing even more or working harder or trying it, out for TV shows and. I want to say no. It might have if AGT hadn't come along. Mm-hmm. It didn't occur to me because don't forget we shot this over five years. Right. And so she came in just before. AGT came along. So once that happened, um, you know, the, the major change in my life was was from AGT and not the movie. Because to be honest, I didn't really expect the movie to ever get made. Uh, you know, because as comedians, we're promised things all the time. And, <laughs> right. And even though she, Susan has this tremendous uh, resume, I don't, know, she, I don't know if your listeners know, but she's the writer um, of, the, of the play Crossing Delancey, and she also wrote the screenplay for the movie, and she's also in the movie. So she's got this, and she teaches at NYU. So she's got this wonderful background, you know, and even with that, I wasn't sure, you know, she was going to deliver on what she uh, promised. But little did I know, if you don't know Susan, she's a pit bull. Once she digs in, nothing stops her. She's amazing, an amazing woman. That no, you, part of her, I'm sorry, that part of her inspired me to, to move on and push forward. But you, you just you just brought up a good point or you reminded me of a of a great point, which is, you know, it's it's so perhaps it's it's, it's very easy for me to talk to you or want to focus on on your transition and, and what it's like to be a, a trans comedian. But there are already so many issues in the comedy industry that have been there for decades, including just getting paid for your gigs. <laughs> like you're talking the about gig like- even being there when you get there. <laughs> I, had a, I had a New Year's Eve gig that I drove hours to get to, and I got there, and the place had mysteriously burnt down the night before. <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff happens. Right. There's, there's, so many, there's so many things that go against the comedian's uh, ability to make a living or to have a, or to have peace of mind and sanity as a professional working comedian, and then and then you add, you know, gender and and sex and and age, mm-hmm. and there's age more than the gender. I think that's what I I, mm-hmm. I was wondering, like which which you felt more. I mean, I guess you felt the aging first. Well, let let me let's start with the gender first because uh, the gender for me the the transition has been both a plus and a minus for me. I know that uh, with HET, for instance, it was a plus for them uh, because, you know, they had this sort of oddity on. There's no case five years ago. There weren't a lot of trans people floating around. And plus, I I was also funny. So I had two things going for me going into HET. So they were going to get a lot by putting me on. I was going to get a lot just by being on. I mean, I was the first trans comic on that show, I think. Uh, and I wound up going to the quarterfinals. So for me, it was very, it was, it was very much like, 
look at me as a comedian, because if you remember back when I did the shows, I didn't, I didn't do the reveal until after my set. I wanted my set to stand on its own. And that's what I want as a comic today. So the ageism comes into, into play, you know, on TV, I'm this cute little old lady, you know, and that was the inch with a foul, with a foul mouth. <laughs> that's how uh, Simon perceived me. For me, though, I'm a comedian first. That's first and foremost and always. I revere my work. I revere the people in it. I'm so happy that you do, too. And I was reading about you, uh, how this all came about for you and how much you love comedy. And thank you on behalf of the entire industry for, for recognizing that. Um, so, but on um, the age part, when I came back, yeah, there were people that are concerned that uh, a certain demographic, I couldn't put asses in the seats. And that's all, that's really what it comes down to. Could I put asses in the seats? And I felt like if I was funny enough, it didn't matter. The asses would come just based on word of mouth or reputation. And that's kind of what's happened. But my take on it is old people come to see me because they can relate to me. Uh, middle-aged people come to see me because I remind them of their parents and young people come to see me because I remind them of the grandmother they'd love to have. That's what I've heard from my audiences. That's, that's a, that's a great sales pitch. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't know if you know or how well you know, Carol Montgomery. I know Carol 30 something years. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Carol's, Carol's been, been like fighting against it herself mm-hmm. and, you know, she managed to put together two different specials, for Showtime called Women of a Certain Age. I'm on one of them. But but even then, yeah, and even then, it's, um, you know, you have to share it with six other people. Like, you don't get, <laughs> you don't get your own, spe- like, once once you hit an age and then a gender, it's like you, you, you get siphoned off into one-sixth of an hour. Yes, but... It, it, Okay, let me let me take a step back with Carol because I think Carol that the idea for these shows is, was, was genius on her part, I think, because we are an underrepresented uh, Democrat uh, niche in comedy, older older women, and so she's felt that her entire career as a woman. You know, I I'm late to the game, but I get it. I totally understand it. Um, let me tell you what kind of a person Carol Montgomery is, and I don't, and you may not know this about her. I was booked on the first. Funny women of a certain age. So she was, well, I was one of the first people she called. A, I was thrilled, and I said to her, "Do you, you think there's going to be a problem with having a trans woman on the show?" She goes, "I don't give a fuck what people think." <laughs> I said, "Okay, but that, then we got that out of the way." So we booked the show in about a two or three weeks, maybe three weeks before the taping. I had, um, I was rushed to the hospital, and I had quadruple bypass surgery. And I, uh, I called her once I could speak again. I said, I, I, I said, I think I'm going to make it. <laughs> I couldn't even get out. She goes, all right, well, we'll hold the spot open for you. <laughs> she held it over. She she believed me. So she held the spot open for like a week before. And I couldn't get, I still couldn't get out of bed. And so to fight, that's why I said I didn't get to do the special. And it broke my heart because it, it was a golden opportunity, uh, for this great show and great press and great people on the show. Well, she said to me uh, a couple months later, listen, I don't know if there's going to be a second one, but if there is, you're the first person I'm calling. And true to her word, she did. And 
couple of months later, I was I was on it. So Carol is a mensch, and she's a person of integrity, and she's a sweetheart, and I love her dearly. And if anybody ever says anything bad about her, I'm going to kick him right in the groin. <laughs> well, please don't kick me in the groin. I know I Carol would never kick you in the groin. Carol, you know, Carol has worked hard to like even get get you ladies like even that much credit on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it's to me, it's, it's testament of like the the struggle that that still remains in comedy, even you know, in the wake of the Trump years and Me Too, and you know the Generation Z kids who are who are the woke generation, who are who are you know waking us us older people all up to the injustices that we've all kind of like sloughed off. Mm-hmm. We're just just been like, oh, I guess that's just the way the business works, and we all have to put up with sleazy bookers and owners and other comedians who might assault us and yeah i i mean her stories her horror stories are run you know a lot deeper and more graphic than mine do i've had some bad stories but they were mostly business related um but but she um she's doing a great service for 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 older women in comedy and you think about comedy it's the only business in every other performing art the older you get the more revered you get you know, uh, you start, you know, you get you get Dame put in front of your name if you're British, you know. Uh, and we just we just look to our older artists as mentors and people we can learn from. That's not the case in comedy. You just as we're hitting our prime, which I think I am, and I, and I know Carol is, and just as that happens, we're aged out, and for some reason. Uh, it's, it's somebody. It's been unofficially pro- proclaimed that comedy is for the young. I disagree. I think I have a lot, lot, lot to say still. Um, and uh, proof of that, I'm I'm taping my second album in November for uh, 800 Pound Gorilla Records, which is a uh, you know pretty much a mainstream comedy album. They must know something. If you could change. The comedy industry. I mean, one of the things that, that I've noticed just over the years is one of the one of the base problems of it is it's so decentralized. Like there's no union, there's no there's no rhyme or reason to much of it. So there's no president, there's no human resources. What okay. if you if you had any sort of authority in the comedy industry, what would you what would you do to fix it and make it better? And if I were queen... <laughs> yeah, if you were the queen of comedy, what would yeah, you do, Julia Scott? Actually, I don't know how old you are, but back in the 80s, we actually did try to form a union uh, called the Professional Comedians Association. And we had uh, several presidents, myself being one of them. And one of the goals that we had was to move towards uh, aligning with SAG-AFTRA. Uh, we, were in the, we were in talks with... with uh, the Teamsters to, to become part of an actual union. And what happened was uh, the comedians. Comedians are independent. Comedians blew it. They, you know, they, we would we would say, all right, you're going you're gonna to go into a, into a club for X dollars. That's the minimum for a, a professional uh, comedians association member. That's what it is. So they, you know, the ones who agreed to it said, fine. So what would happen? Some the hack comic would go in and undercut it and do it for half that money. So comedians were their own worst enemy on that, on that uh, 
uh, on that point. What else would I change? I don't know if I would change it, and I'd hate to be one of these comics that uh, goes by. You know, when I was when I was a young comic, but this this I think is true. The system we had, at least in the major cities, it's my cat. I'm sorry. All right. The system we had was we had three or four major clubs in Manhattan, and that was pretty much replicated in, in all the cities. And what you would have to do is you'd have to audition for these places. Just like you would for a movie or a play, or what? And if you passed auditions, you got to hang out and you got to learn. You got to watch uh, the masters at work, and you got to watch up and comers. And that's how I learned. I mean, there was nothing uh, on uh, the improv, for instance, on, on a given night. You know, I have uh, Robin Williams come in, or Rodney would come in and do a set that he was getting ready for Carson. I mean. And, and then just watching, you know, I was in the class right before Seinfeld and, and Murphy. I mean, Keenan Waynes was the doorman at the improv when I was there. I mean, you know, it's that, it was that kind of a rich artistic environment back then. And you were part of that and you grew up in that and you developed in that. And you got some, you made contacts through that. That's not the case anymore. You've got clubs springing up all over Manhattan because people can't get work at the comedy cellar or whatever's left uh, or the strip. And, and um, uh, what there's, what's happening is they're being in, influenced by their peers. So you've got comic A who's in the business, which hand am I here? Uh, you know, <laughs> six years, right? And you got comic B who's also in it six years. Neither one of them knows diddly, about comedy because they've been learning from each other. So they're making all these comic mistakes. And I, and I know that's an old farty way of looking at it, but I've got the, the benefit of, you know, a hundred years experience. And I can tell you that it would be nicer if there was a developmental program for comics, just like in acting. So what are we, what are we going to need to do to, to make that happen, Julia? Oh, geez. I wish I knew. I wish I knew, Sean. I, I think, you know, the, I teach a class online, uh, or it was, and I, and I wasn't really looking to teach, but somebody asked me, and I said, sure. I think that you need some sort of club system where comics, young comics, aspiring comics, can get out and work in front of crowds, real crowds, get coached, get mentored. Um, I think you need some form of the old system back. It's hard to do, though because it's very expensive to run a comedy club. Yeah. And it's, you know, you mentioned your own efforts trying to unionize stand-up comedians and it, it just baffles me. I'm, I'm 49. Uh So, you know, I was, I was alive, but, but not paying attention to the comedy business when the comedy store strike Uh happened in LA, but to see what happened there and then to see, I know that there was another attempt, at least in New York City, that was successful uh, around the turn of the century in getting the New York City clubs to to increase their spot pay mm-hmm. by by at least you you know centralizing the effort in New York City. But it, it's still baffling to me that the comedians wouldn't want to band together for their own, even in their own self interest. Well, yes, you would think. Right. But it takes uh, comedians. Their whole world is about themselves. I mean, we're very self-centered people. I mean, too. I mean, included. 
So it's hard to be a, a team player. We're not. You know, we're, we're individuals. We're, each one of us is a, you know, an island. Uh, and if somebody's getting work and you desperately need work and you don't want to, you know, wait tables anymore and you could be working, you're going to take that work. I mean, it's, it's sad and uh, I wish it were different. And so when you say, how do you change it? I don't know that you can. I don't. Mm. Our, our union came about, it didn't start as a union. Uh, one of our founding members, Abby Stein, who's no longer with us, got very, very sick. Uh, I believe she had meningitis or something. And she almost died. She had no health insurance whatsoever. And we all got, you know, we, we did the usual. We had some fundraisers and chipping in and stuff. But it, it became very apparent that we had no, uh, comedians were not insurable. There were companies that did not, they could insure you by risk class back then. And uh, we couldn't get group insurance because we were individual employee, you know, we were self-employed. And the AIDS crisis was happening. People in show business couldn't get, you know, outside of SAG after, but right. couldn't get health insurance back then. And so we decided we needed to form some sort of association and hopefully get some group policy in place and make it available to comedians, which we did. There are comedians that today can tell you that, you know, if not for the PCA health insurance, as bad as it was and as expensive as it was, was a lifesaver to them, you know. And so I think we did some good back then. You know, we tried to, we tried to, you know, bring comedy or comedians into, it was a, it was a baby industry, Sean. I mean, nobody knew what the hell they were doing. Right. Nobody. And I and I guess as as you were reminding me earlier, uh, you know, one of the reasons not just you but a lot of people end up being comedians is because they couldn't hold down a regular job. They right. couldn't report to a boss. Right. So, so the I, part of the allure of being a stand-up comedian is you don't have to pay attention to anybody. Yeah, yeah. we don't play well with authority figures <laughs> ever. That's not our nature, and God, thank God for that. Because that's what makes comedians funny. Their their willingness to report on things in life and comment on them, usually in a uh, jabbing way. Mm -hmm. Well, well, Julia, I'm 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 glad to see you uh, surviving and thriving on the the other end of the pandemic, and to know that you're going to have a, a a fresh album. Of, of 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 jokes to share with all of us in, That's in the right, coming I'm year. Dropping. It's gonna drop. <laughs> I don't know. Sometime next year, actually. For well, as I said, we're recording in November. But right. Uh, thank you for you know for the times uh, blurb you put in for us for the movie. Thank you for that, and thank you for you know what you do for comics. It's important stuff, and I'm grateful. And I really, really, I really mean it. I hope you know when I'm in the city, sometime we can hook up and. Um, I don't know. Have a nosh. Of course. Thank you so much, Julie. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening.
Last things first. Last things first.